Hello, and welcome to the Coastal Advocacy Adventures podcast, brought to you by the Coastal Conservation Association. In this episode, we sit down with a few of my former colleagues in the Coastal Fisheries Stock Enhancement Program. For those of you that don't know, Texas Parks and Wildlife has both inland and coastal uh, fisheries stocking programs. Now, the Coastal Fisheries Program is compromised of uh, three facilities. You have the CCA Marine Development Center, or MDC, uh, down in Corpus Christi. You have the Periar Bass Marine Fisheries Research Station outside of Palacios and Sea Center, Texas, which is in Lake Jackson. This conversation is really more of a general overview of the stocking program, and we'll likely have a future episode to talk about uh, fish-specific issues such as southern flounder. Before we get into the meat of this program, I wanted to let you know of a few things happening. There are three banquets coming up in February. On February 7th, you have the Houston Real Estate Chapter Banquet, and that's going to be at the Houston Country Club. And then on February 23rd, there's two banquets. There's the San Bernard Chapter, which will be at Riverside Hall in East Bernard. And then the Trinity Valley uh, Chapter is having their banquet at the Dayton Community Center. Also, we had the Crab Trap cleanup in February from the 17th through the 26th. And if you're interested in helping out with uh, removing derelict crab traps from the texas bays contact zach thomas with parks and wildlife and his phone number is 512-389-8448 then finally in february on the 25th is the billy sandiford big shell cleanup the beach cleanup Um, you can find more information about this and all these other events i mentioned on the cca website so please check that out if you guys have any topics that you as a listener are interested in hearing, please email us at info at ccatexas.org. We're going to continue to blend a mixture of fishing-specific and issue-specific related topics, but if there's something that you guys think is relevant, please reach out to us at that email address and let us know what you want to hear. Also, it's very helpful that you share the podcast on social media and leave us a review on your uh, podcast listening platform. Those reviews will kind of boost uh, the podcast and help us to get uh, more ratings, and it'll basically help spread and grow the podcast. So we appreciate those of you that, that do that. One last thing, I need to apologize for the audio at the beginning of this episode. We had some issues with one of the headsets, and the audio was less than optimal, but just hang in there and in It'll get better, I promise. So, without further ado, here we go with Robert, David, and Paul. All right, welcome to the Coastal Advocacy Adventures podcast. We are down in Flower Bluff, Texas at the Marine Development Center. We've got Dr. Robert Vega, David Abrego, and Paul Case, and David's whispering in my ear to get the name right. It's the CCA Marine Development Center. In Flower Bluff. Thank you, David. You're welcome. <laughs> hey, put that thing a little bit a little bit closer. There you go. All right, so we're going to start this as we normally do with some introductions. Um, and we'll start uh, with you, Robert. So why don't you tell us who you are and a little bit of about yourself. Almost on your mouth. Thanks, Shane. I'm Robert Vega, and I serve as the Coastal Fisheries Division Hatcheries Program leader. 
and I've been with the group here for 32 years so I've seen a lot with the uh, through the hatchery program over the years how did what did you um, what were you when you started well I started uh, off as a seasonal technician w once I uh, finished my graduate degree and then uh, it was called Corpus Christi State University and then from there I just worked my way up through the career ladder and I served as a technician, a biologist, the hatchery manager, and now the program leader. How many years? A total of 32 years. 32 years. Yeah. And so when you started, you started as a, as a technician, that was a seasonal? Seasonal technician. Seasonal uh -huh. tech. And were yeah. you in school at the time? Well, I j had just finished school. Prior to uh, being hired as a seasonal technician, I was doing some research projects with Gene McCarty. And we were uh, enumerating red drum. We were getting a handle on how to count red drum eggs and larvae. So we did some experiments. And then I guess I did a good job. And then they wanted to hire me afterwards. And so a week after I graduated with my master's degree, and I was hired by the department. And you worked your way up the ladder ever, ever since. Yeah. Uh, every step of the way in our program, I, I was able to spend some time in and and so I have good understanding of the whole program based on the time that I spent at each individual category of the, of the jobs that we have. Absolutely. <laughs> I want to get back to that, um, counting the eggs. Okay. Because I think that's an interesting point, and it's kind <laughs> of uh, kind of lays the uh, part of the foundation of the entire hatchery program, really, if you think about it. So I think that's a good story to share. Okay. All right. We got Mr. David Abrego next to me mm -hmm. my former supervisor and um colleague and and still friend and, and mentor david I'm david abreu coastal fisheries sea center texas facility director been with the agency for 27 years and uh, like robert followed the basically the same career path started off as technician became a biologist then assistant manager then the manager here at the all that was done here at the uh, CCA Marine Development Center. Then in 2001, I was transferred to Sea Center, Texas, and assumed duties as a facility director there. And you, you so you started off as a tech, worked mm -hmm. your way up. Mm -hmm. uh, before you started, you have a story that you sometimes tell when you came out here, one of your first times out here when you were looking for a job, mm -hmm. and you were out here with... Right, Robert. Yeah, yeah. You mind sharing that? I guess so. Uh, well, you know, I uh, have a different kind of background. I have a degree in sociology from St. Mary's University, but as I was growing up, I worked uh, in construction. Worked in all kinds of different kind of construction, nuclear power plants, stuff like that. And uh, Corpus is my hometown, and I'd been traveling for a while, and I wanted to move back to Corpus. Found out about the a vacancy out here at the time and of course I knew Robert from, from a previous life you know we went to school together back in uh, el uh, elementary high school and uh, so I, I was interested in a job and Robert told me to come out one day you know one night well I came out and I think there had been a blowout on one of the ponds out there you know and they'd frantically working on it and stuff but when I got out here I, I it came out in the evening it was very quiet, and it was very unusual. 
for me, as far as a working environment. And I remember telling Robert, uh, man, it's quiet out here. And Robert said, yeah, but it, it gets pretty wild sometimes. And I said, uh, oh, really? When? And Robert said, when all the fish start dying. <laughs> and I was like, whoa. And I said, so what do you do then? And Robert said, oh, go fishing and get some more. <laughs> <laughs> so at that point, you know, I, I was pretty interested in the but it it did take quite a while for me to get a job as a technician. I think yeah. I interviewed like three or four times because it was always there was a turnover at the beginning of the program. There was a lot of turnover, but I did come from a different kind of background, so I d had to do a little bit of studying. And each time I had an opportunity to interview, I learned more, and, and so eventually I got a job as a as a technician and and fell in love with the job. But you kind of you kind of had an epiphany that night, right? You're like, oh yeah, I could do this. Oh yeah, yeah, because you know, and when I was working in construction, of course, I, I did that for as a, from a child on up to 36 years of age, and I had been a supervisor in, in a lot of those big projects, you know, especially like the South Texas Nuclear Project. So I'd been a manager and a supervisor, and when I got here, it was kind of like you know. Uh, once I talked to Robert and I saw the facility, I realized it was a production facility. And I, and I, it came to me that I can do this. You know, I, I can, no matter what kind of, what you, what the product is or what the, uh, what you're trying to do, if uh, you have experience in management, then you can, you can transfer those management skills to any business. And I felt at the time that uh, I could possibly have a career here. It was impossible, though, at the time to, you know, as far as, uh, of course, I couldn't see that I would be in the position I am today. Yeah. Yeah. Know? But it was, uh, and then, of course, when I did get hired on, I came out here. I remember Robert would always, whenever I was working uh, the first several months, Robert would always tell me, you know, do you see it? Do you see the vision? And, of course, I could, you know, so uh been been working on the vision ever since yeah so you didn't start till you're 36 36 36 i didn't start a career with exploration wildlife till then that's correct that's awesome mm -hmm. i always tell everybody i came in through the back door because i really wasn't intending to be, have a career in this type of field didn't even know that there was yeah. this type of field available in fact the uh, I just thought of it that I could maintain the facility because of my uh, experience in, in uh, construction and maintenance and stuff like yeah. that. So that's, that was my usefulness when I first got here, you know, being able to do things uh, to maintain the facility. Mm -hmm. you know, the rest I learned on the job. On the job. Mm -hmm. Never stopped learning. Never stopped learning. Actually went back to school, uh, took some master classes, uh, some biology classes, got enough uh, education uh, cr credentials to where I could apply for a biologist job. And that took a couple of times before I got that <laughs> one, too. So, But, yeah, love the job. That's a good lesson, too, for people that are interested with least Parks and Wildlife or anything, any career you want to really achieve for is you don't stop. You don't get denied once or twice or three times. Just keep trying. If it's your heart's into it, you That's correct. keep going for it. Yeah, yeah. If you want it, to, uh, you can learn to do it. Yeah. Yep. 
And then to my left, we have Mr. Paul Kaysen, who's probably not even 36 yet. How old are you, Paul? 32 years old. 32. Young blood. <laughs> Young blood Paul Kaysen. Paul, why don't you tell us about yourself? Okay. I grew up in North Texas at uh, Granbury, Texas, and um, we would take childhood. Um, I had fond memories of childhood vacations down to the coast. We would go to Port Aransas, and sometimes we'd go to Dolphin Island, Alabama, and uh, just growing up, those were my greatest memories of uh, fishing in saltwater and playing at the beach. And so when I graduated high school and I was trying to decide where to go, I um, I knew that I wanted to end up on the coast. So uh, I enrolled at A&M Corpus Christi and started taking uh, marine biology classes there and uh, working at a local fish shop while I was taking classes. Um, just trying to find a career where I could, you know, make a living working with fish. And uh, Dr. McKee, who's no stranger to CCA, um, took me under his wing and um, recommended that if I was serious about getting a job with Parks and Wildlife, that I uh, check into volunteering at the at the hatchery here. So um, I made a phone call and made plans to meet with some of the biologists and the hatchery manager and. Um, they set up a schedule for me to come out and volunteer in between classes and work. So um, that's kind of how my career got started, just learning the job here and learning, meeting the people and, uh, you know, building relationships with those people. And uh, eventually, after I graduated, a technician position became available. And uh, so, of course, I applied for it, and I felt like I had pretty good, good odds of getting the job. But things didn't work out like that, and uh, they hired somebody else. But they kept telling me, don't let that get you down. Sometimes it takes a few times. Yeah. And uh, so I stuck with it, kept, kept in touch with the Hatcher group, kept volunteering. And uh, eventually another job was opened up and uh, applied for it and got hired as a fish and wildlife technician here at uh, the Marine Development Center. So, and I actually found out that I was, I, they, they offered the job to me on my birthday, which was one of the best birthday presents <laughs> I've ever had. <laughs> so, of course, I accepted. And then about a year after being a technician here, um, another position opened up in uh, Palacios, and it was the hatchery manager position. And I'd been working hard as a technician, trying to learn everything I can from everybody I worked with. Um, whether it was, you know, uh, fish culture uh, techniques and protocol or, uh, you know, maintenance-related activities. I was just trying to soak it all up, and I, I feel like I did a good job of doing that. And uh, lo and behold, when the position came available in Palacios, um, I applied, and, and uh, luckily I got that job, and I've been there for seven years now, so, uh, and loving it. It's wonderful. Did you feel like you were, when you went into that job, did you feel like you were prepared for what that for that job would entail, or did you not really know I knew, what to expect? I knew that there were going to be lots of challenges and that I was going to have to learn quickly, and I didn't doubt that I could do it, but I just knew it was going to be a lot of work. So I went into it with my eyes open, knowing that it was a little bit of a risk going into it, and there's potential for failure in a, in a move like that, but I had confidence. Um, in my in the leadership in our hatchery program that they were gonna they were gonna see that I was successful and I had the determination to make sure that that happened so it was a very good move for me 
Uh, so seven years in Palacios. Yep. At and the Paragraph. One year here at uh, one year, Development so Eight Center. years total. It's great. It's good. Um, let's let's get into a little bit uh, the beginning of the hatchery program. I think that's uh, something that CCA uh, members or folks listening to this podcast would be interested in hear about. So we'll start with you, Robert. But if you could just kind of lead us in to, um, you know, after at the tail end, I guess, uh, of the Redfish Wars, folks in, in CCA and, and Parks and Wildlife were, you know, kind of had this vision of how to get redfish back into Texas waters. And, of course, the hatchery program was a part of that vision. And it just kind of aligned with research that had been going on at UTMSI. So if you could just kind of talk about that and kind of the inception of the hatchery program and what it was like in those early days. Oh, sure. Uh, thank you for the opportunity again, Shane. And I can tell you that uh, the Coast Hatcheries program wouldn't be where we're at today without the support of CCA over the years. CCA Texas and the national group have been a, a blessing to us. So we're very fortunate to have the support of CCA. But back in, when I look back and think about the late 1970s, early 1980s, as you mentioned, the Red Drum Wars were ongoing. There was issues with netting, commercial fishing, and, and the Red Drum population had plummeted along the Texas coast and the whole Gulf of Mexico. So the our coastal managers were were desperate for solutions. It's a big business, uh, recreational fishing, and, and so some had to be done. Some proposals had to be uh, put forth and moved on. And so we, that's when our, and by 1975, our, the, coastal had, the Coastal Fisheries Long-Term Monitoring Program started. And then uh, rules and regulations were modified, fishing regulations. And then also one of the other ideas that were put forth was uh, the development of a hatchery program, stock enhancement, to supplement the wild fish. And so stock enhancement at the time had been done mostly in inland lakes and rivers around the country and around the world and uh, the, the oceans didn't have much success in regards to talk enhancement because the technology wasn't there and uh, so stock enhancement marine stock enhancement has been around since the 1800s the federal government had a big push in the 1850s to start up some uh, fish hatcheries such as woods hole and some other famous uh, marine biology stations and so what people were doing at that time, what the researchers and scientists were doing, where they were collecting eggs, strip-spawning fish, such as the cod and, and uh, other Atlantic-type fish, and they were stocking the larvae into the oceans. But the only thing, or not the only thing, but the, a major problem was there was not enough information about the natural history of the fish. So they were putting the larvae back, and, and they were good scientists. They just didn't know the natural history of the fish or the background of the fish. So, for instance, they were putting, uh, say, Atlantic Ocean fish into coastal estuaries, and the survival rates were pretty low. And also, at that time, they were just uh, they were just stocking larval fish, which is uh, pretty much hit or miss. And so there was issues. In about the 1940s, uh, the favor of marine stock enhancement faded out. And then it wasn't until the 1980s Shane, as you mentioned, when technology was available 
in, in terms of the research, in terms of hatchery production, for the idea of stock enhancement to surface again as a viable fisheries management tool. And about that time, 1983, the, the, the proposals was a little bit earlier, a couple years earlier, to build a marine hatchery for purposes of uh, supplementing red drum. The CCA was a big advocate of that. They provided millions of dollars to, uh, to support the idea. And then we had, as you mentioned, uh, researchers at UTMSI, Connie Ar Dr. Connie Arnold and Joan Holt, they were on the frontier, pioneer frontier of developing, uh, developing methods to rear larval fish. And then we, Parks and Wildlife had his own researchers, Bob Calora, he did he was our, he did a lot and he was a, a, one of our first pioneers in terms of successfully fertilizing culture ponds and growing larval fish into fringlings out in those ponds. And then we had uh, our, our own coastal hatchery pioneers and leaders, Gene McCarty, Bill Rutledge, and later on Mike Ray, who spearheaded the hatchery program. And they, uh, they worked hard to develop plans for the hatchery program and build facilities. And then from there, it's basically what we've been doing for the last 30 years is we've taken that model and then we continue to improve upon the model. So one thing that we want to do for sure is that we always stay on the cutting edge of the technology of stock enhancement and fisheries management because if we don't, it's, it's going to leave us behind. If we continue to do methods that were developed years ago and there, there's technology available where we can improve the quality of our fish, the number of fish that we're producing, that we got to stay up with that. So just in a nutshell, the issue was in the 1980s, early 80s, there was the Red Drum Wars. There was a need to stock fish to supplement the wild population. We've developed the hatchery program, and then we'll continue to improve upon the technology. And our goal, one of our goals is to, uh, to raise high-quality fish that survive in the wild, that are, are natural as they can be. We have a... Uh, strong outreach program, Sea Center Texas here, PRB, and we want to show the public what we do. We want them to interact with us. We promote fishing. We teach kids how to fish at our facilities, for example, and then we do research, and research is an integral part of our whole program. So if, if we want to stay up with cutting-edge technology, we have to be constantly doing research to stay up with that technology because every day we have more tools available to us. So, we, But our challenge is to implement those tools and utilize them in a practical way. Let's, um, so this is a good opportunity, I think, to talk about research and how it has um, pretty significant hatchery um, implications. And you mentioned earlier you, you, you started working with uh, Gene McCarty on a project. Um, yeah. Counting redfish eggs. So, uh, give us a little more detail on that and how that has played a, a role in the daily operations of hatchery life. Yeah. So, it was with uh, Gene McCarty and, and Dr. Gary Matlock. So, as the hatchery programs were being developed, the protocols they needed some method to verify some of the calculations that they were making. And at the time, so we we got we. We had the, the know-how, the technology on how to spawn our fish or captive red drum using a photoperiod temperature manipulation. So we got that part down, and we could essentially have the fish spawn any time that we want. So then we collected the eggs, and then we would put them in tanks. But the, the, the challenge was to determine how many eggs that we were collecting 
were we counting the eggs properly? And so we had to develop methods on uh, to verify that the eggs that we were counting, initially we were just calculating, were correct. So my task, so my task was to verify the calculations that Gene had had uh, calculated. So let's say uh, they would provide me a blank sample. So Gene would take a sample of eggs and he would and he would enumerate it, but he wouldn't tell me what the number was. And then my job was to go back and physically count each egg. And so I counted tens of thousands of eggs, and then we compare my calculations to Gene's numbers. And so we did that for a year, or about a year. And well, I counted a lot of eggs. And just like so people <laughs> know, a redfish egg is like about a, a millimeter, millimeter in size. Yeah. yeah. So it's that tiny. took me. It took me a while, but uh, but we were able to doing that, that process. We were able to fine tune our accounting mechanisms and uh, and able to verify. And from there, we we moved on to counting the larval fish and tested that. And then we moved on to counting fingerlings. So we had to develop these protocols along the way to verify that our numbers were correct. So we want to know if uh, when we harvest a pond, for instance, if we take uh, 100,000 fish fringlings out of a pond, we want to make sure that there's 100,000 fringlings that we're reporting that we're releasing into the wild. So it's important to verify every number that we have. And early on, it, we were developing all the hatchery protocols, and that was part one of the things that we we focused on making sure that our numbers are accurate. Well, it's you. You can't under you. I mean, it's so critically important to everything that the hatcheries do with regard to stock enhancement. I mean, that is the foundation of of uh, everything from an egg to harvesting a pond. Cause, because you're right, if you don't know what you're putting out there, then you can't do anything else. You can't estimate survival. You can't estimate um, recruitment into the estuaries, anything like that. Y if so you can't measure it, you can't manage it. There you go. Yeah, that's one of the sayings. <laughs> you can't measure it, you can't manage it. I like that one. <laughs> so David when you were when all this was starting up were you in tune with what was going on with redfish and the hatchery program or I mean Not was your all. life just totally separate from my, all that at the time my life was totally separate from the ocean or from the, <laughs> the only thing I did it uh, was surf back in the day yeah you know, but I uh, had no idea that this was even going on it was just one of those things I was looking for a, a job you know because uh this was in the early 90s. I got hired on in 1990. And at that time, you know, uh, uh, I traveled around the United States working different jobs and stuff, you know, construction jobs, big jobs and stuff. And uh, I uh, just, it was an accident hearing about the job. I ran across Robert, saw him, I think Robert. Uh, actually, I had a, a sister-in-law that worked here. That was how I found out about it. My sister-in-law, Mike Ray hired my sister-in-law to uh, as the administrative assistant here. And that's how I even knew Robert was here, you know. And then uh, she left, and uh, I, I think I ran across Robert, and, he, you know, at the time they were, the agency was hiring, and so uh, I just uh, was looking for an opportunity, you know. I wasn't really even thinking about a career, you know. I was just looking to, I just got married, you know, and so... I was looking for something new here in Corpus, you know, moving back home, you know, so. But, yeah, I had, I had no knowledge whatsoever. But you, When you started, though, I mean, some of the things were done a little bit, you know, some of our the strategies that the hatchers were using were different than they are now. Like, oh, yeah. you know, used to stock 
fry uh, oh, larvae yeah. in the water, oh, and yeah. then now it's shifted. So why don't you elaborate on that? A well, bit? when I got here, uh, we had a uh, one of the goals besides, you know, uh, hatching out the eggs and putting the, and getting the larvae and putting them out in the ponds. One of the things we had to do is we had to stock 100 million larvae into in around St. Joseph Island area, and uh, that was a major project. So unlike what we do now where we are kind of selective about the number of, of eggs that we collect on a certain day, we actually at that time would collect every egg that was spawned on every day and we would hatch out literally millions, tens of, of you know, uh, uh, in, a, in you know, a month's time, you know. But we would actually, uh, if you can imagine now, you know, harvesting around five, six incubators in one day. So it was actually, I remember one of the first things I had to do was learn how to count those fry. And you know how that is. It's a, you know, you, you do it by eyesight. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a little 10 mil sample. You put it into a beaker. You shine a light underneath it, or you, best you can, you count them. And we actually, I remember it was actually kind of a, one of the biggest things we did, uh, everybody in the morning would go into the incubator room, and we would literally fill up a, a truck with styrofoam boxes, and it could be up to around 20 or 30 styrofoam boxes of fry, holding about 200,000 each. Something yeah, like and, that. and just so people know, one, one fry or one fish larvae is one to two millimeters in length. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they're tiny. Yeah, and we would have to, we would take those fry out to the, to the bay, and then we would raft them. You know, we would actually get, they were, in, they were enclosed in, uh, in plastic bags, and we would take those plastic bags out into the, into the bay, and somehow we would all clip them all together, and we'd have a big old raft of floating bags out there with fry, and then we would temper them to, the, you know, to acclimate them to the, to the environment, and then let them all go. And we did that for a long time until we actually reached that 100 million. But, but at that time, you know, every, any egg that was spawned was incubated. So if we had 15 million eggs spawned in the night, we, we incubated 15 million eggs. How'd y'all get them to the, where did y'all, how'd y'all get them to the island? We would uh, take them in, uh, in, in the styrofoam boxes. And just drop them. And we had yeah. volunteers helping us. Yeah. They had boats. Yeah. That, that was another thing. That's what, I was wondering if y'all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Load them up boats and yeah. take them over. Uh, oh, in fact, we would meet some CCA members, uh, CCA even a barge. I think at one time we had barges that uh, uh, local CCA members would meet us, and then they would take them out on the boat and stuff yeah. at yeah. times. So yeah. we kind of collaborated. Yeah. The Rangers Bay. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was a uh, labor-intensive, very labor-intensive because we would get a lot of spawns, you know. And like I said, you know, it, we didn't – nothing – Nothing was wasted, you know, everything. In fact, that was the, when I got here, that was the thing. You didn't even throw away a piece of, a, a two-inch piece of uh, two-by-four. You kept it because it could be a wedge that you would use out on the screens, <laughs> out on the ponds, you know. Keep the door open. <laughs> very frugal, very frugal. We had uh, limited resources, you know. We, made, we took advantage of everything we had, you know. But we had great leadership, and that was the thing, you know. We, uh, there were encouraging us to learn and to improve yeah so there's been a lot of changes since you know well i came on board yeah you know and so um things have things have kind of shifted now rv kind of alluded to it but 
put out the best fish that, that you possibly can to have the best survival to get the most bang for your buck. So, yeah, and, and Shane, the, one of the issues with stocking larvae was that there's no way to track. They were so small, you're not able to mark them in any way. At the time, we didn't have any kind of genetic technology to do that. So that, that's what, uh, af after stocking that many fry and, and not able to detect any kind of reasonable result, then that's why we stopped. It, it may have been a good idea, but at the time, we didn't have technology to verify that you it was say successful. All that work was worth it because you wouldn't know if the fish were surviving. You had no way of telling. Yeah, but we learned a lot about how to handle larvae. <laughs> and, uh, how to and ship them. How to ship them, yeah. yeah. So it was a worthwhile effort. and. And uh, it's just that the technology wasn't there at the time to verify whether they were surviving or not. In, in, in terms of verifying, to follow a larvae for two or three years until it, it recruits into the slot size, we didn't have that technology at the time. And now we do. Now we do. Uh -huh. And so, Paul, why don't you why don't you tell people what the um, kind of what the target range is for fish that y'all release now, and in, in general terms, kind of what um, stock enhancement targets on a uh, coast-wide basis for the amount of fish that, that you're releasing. Okay. Um, well, that is something that has changed over the years, like uh, David and Robert have been talking about. Um, we're continuing to try to advance our goals and move forward, um, not being satisfied with the status quo. And so one of the things we're trying to do is release a fish that is better than the fish we used to release that's more fit. So uh, one of the reason, one of the ways that we can do that is by increasing the size of the fish that we release. So um, back when the program got started, we were releasing, and this is way before my time, but we were releasing fish that were probably in the 25 to 28 millimeter range. So really small fish, and they were releasing a whole lot of them. Um, but one strategy to increase our efficiency and increase uh, the survival rate of the fish that we are releasing is to increase the size of those fish. So um, when I got on board, it was a, a 35 millimeter fish was, that was the target. And since then, um, you know, we're just pushing that forward a little bit at a time. So uh, now we're shooting for a 35 to, to 37 millimeter fish. I know it doesn't sound like much, but um, those two millimeters of extra length, um, you're getting a fish that's, um, it's a much more fit and it's much more hardy so um, that's that's one way we've looked at improving and uh, in our our goals on how many fish we stock that's also something that's changed over the years um, you know historically we were we were stocking 30 million plus red drum in a year well um, if anyone fishes you know that there's a lot of red drum out there right now so uh, we kind of reevaluated, and our, our um, fisheries managers who are, you know, monitoring the wild populations, you know, have verified that there's a lot of redfish out there. So we've been able to uh, back off of that uh, that massive redfish effort and put more resources in the trout. So we've scaled back our, our uh, red drum quotas, and we've put more of those resources in the trout. So um, we're looking at, you know, 15 million red drum now and with a goal of 10 million trout so that's that's uh, been on the rise um big time the past you know five to five to ten years and that's 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 across the entire texas yeah, coast from, from brownsville to louisiana yeah. basically right so, yes exactly and shane if, if i can add one of the challenges in, in dealing or determining 
what is the correct size of fish to release. So you have to keep in mind, we try to keep our fish as natural as, as we can in, in terms of the wild fish, their counterparts. And so we try to keep that time that we have the fish in our pond as short as possible to keep the fish natural. So we could grow out a fish that was a foot long, but it wouldn't be real natural in, in, in terms of it wouldn't know exactly how to behave once we release it into the wild. So that's one of the challenges that we have, figuring out determining what's the optimum size of fish that we should be releasing that's going to act as, as just like a wild fish. So This this may be putting it in, in too general of terms, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but with the size fish that, that um, hatcheries are targeting right now, 35 to 40-ish millimeter fish, once that fish is acclimated to its environment, whether that acclimation takes the fish three hours or three days, but once he is he is at home in his new environment, he has every chance of surviving as any other natural fish that's in the water. I mean, is that a safe thing to say to people yeah. if you're trying to, when people ask how many, you know, how many of your fish are surviving, or what, what chance do they have to survive over the natural fish? And I, I would, for me, it's always been, well, after they acclimate, they are a natural fish. They can survive as just just as next to the fish that was spawned out in the Gulf. There is no difference. That's right. Uh, their parents, the broodfish, are wild natural fish. And, and again, so we, we try to minimize the time that our fish are in the ponds, and we, we like to keep it within a 25 to 35-day period and then release the fish. But if we can grow out a larger fish during that time, let's say we've been targeting a 30-millimeter fish in that 30-day period, but if we can grow out a 40-millimeter fish in that 30-day period, then the chances are, are greatly increased for survival rates. But uh, so that's the main point. Just you have to balance the considerations of the wild and then the time that the fish spend in the ponds. Uh, why don't you go back real quick to um, how the hatcheries track, um, or at least what the technology is that allows the hatcheries to track their fish that, that are released? Well, about 15 years ago, mm, one of the uh, division directors was, was asking the hatchery group, uh, how many of your fish are surviving in the wild? And at the time, we were we were focusing on just being able to produce the number of fish that we were asked to produce every year. So then we all looked at each other and said, well, we didn't know we were supposed to be doing that. Well, thanks for the opportunity. So this was about 15, 15 years ago. And so we were able to reach out to the academic scientists to help us determine the best way to tag our fish. And we, through after a lot of trial and effort, we determined uh, that the best way was to genetically mark the fish. So so we worked with Dr. John Gold out of Texas A&M College Station, and he helped us develop a marking technique for our red drum broodfish. And essentially what we're doing is we're, when we capture the wild broodfish in the bays, we bring them back to the hatchery, we take a fin clip sample, and from there, we essentially get a DNA fingerprint on the broodfish. And, uh, and once you have the DNA fingerprint, you can identify the progeny that are spawned by those fishes. And, uh, and Dr. Gold has always told me that he can tell us what tank the fish comes out of. If you catch a red drum along Texas coast, he can tell you what hatchery, what tank it came out of based on that DNA fingerprint. So that's, and, and that's taken several years to, uh, to develop that DNA fingerprint in that process, and we've been real successful at it. And then uh, we, the next step was we we uh, we tested that theory, where we we 
developed our genetic markers. We released fish or fingerlings that were marked with that genetic information. And then we went back with our ecosystem leaders and we captured fish from the bay systems. And then from there, we were able to determine how many of our, our fish were surviving. And uh, but again, th this was a limited research project because it was pretty expensive. So the, the base of it is that over a year's time, 500 fish were collected from certain base systems. This, these fish were randomly collected. And, uh, and then we went back, we took samples from those fish and submitted them to Dr. Gold, and he was able to determine the percentage from that 500 fish sample, the percentage that were hatchery fish. And so that number ranged from like 1 to 17% of those 500 from each of the base systems. And again, because of we had a, a limited amount of money, we were only able to target a certain size of fish. So in the samples, we were only targeting fish that were 20 inches to 23 inches. So that means that fish that were smaller or larger than uh, those particular size, that, that size range weren't included. So w since then, we've developed models to estimate how many of those others, we call them dark fish. The ones you missed. Yeah, the ones we missed. Yeah. And, and so the numbers there range from overall like 20 to 30 percent of what our hatchery fish. What's interesting about that was that I, I remember when I started with the hatchery program, some of those numbers were just coming out. And b and before that, everything was based off of work that was that was done during what was you know trying to find the off-season fish because our hatchery fish are yeah are released in this in this from the spring all the way through the fall, mm -hmm. but the, certainly in time periods where fish aren't reproducing naturally. So yeah, out of phase, out fish, of phase uh, fish, fish that were that that were a size that wouldn't be occurring naturally in the bay, and the numbers that I had always heard were. Around 20, 25 percent of correct. those of those, mm -hmm. you know, based on that research, they estimate 20, 25 percent are hatchery fish, and so um, then you get hard numbers up to 17 percent, and then models say it's closer to 20, 25. So, I first of all, I think that's kind of fascinating that all those kind of line up, you know, mm -hmm. close together, and then secondly, um, it's certainly affirmation that you know hatchery program is working and then that's one of our goals to to ensure that we do our work in the scientific method where we can verify again go back to the verification that what we're doing actually works and so since that time we've also developed markers for spotted sea trout and then we're in the process of developing markers for southern flounder so it, over the years to come we're going to be testing those other species too and then we'll continue to improve upon the genetic marking program for the red drum so, again, we want evidence that this program is working. Otherwise, we've always said we'll put it on the table and shut down the hatcheries if, if what we're doing is not working. Were you, so when you, were you nervous at all? Or were either of you guys nervous when, this, like, when the research started? And were you like, oh, crap, what if they don't find any of our fish? Well, yeah, that was, yeah I was definitely nervous. And, but I, was, I also had confidence and uh, had that gut feeling that yeah. just based on the, the, the fish populations coming back, it, it ha we had to have some kind of contribution to that effort. But, yeah, I, yeah. I was nervous. It, a lot of sleepless nights and things <laughs> like that. Yeah. And, and, you know, Shane, you know very well that when we harvest, when we work with these fish and we do this fish culturing, that uh, it's always been our practice to, when we teach people to work with them, it's to be one with the fish. And when you harvest those fish, you know, you can tell. You can feel it, you know, that uh, you got a good batch. They're going to survive. There's going to be survival. And uh, 
a good fish culturist can feel it, you know, and I think that's one of the things that we've felt was that uh, it w would be successful. But, yeah, we uh, – because it, it could have been a zero, you yeah. know, because that's the way it is, you know. Uh, it, it's all about windows, and uh, it, it could have been a, a zero. It wouldn't have necessarily been tr right, but it could have been a zero. It also could have been 50%. Yeah. You know, you know so – uh, like Robert says, it's the technology. Uh, it's been, especially when we used to mark, Robert talks about the genetic marking. We did all kinds of marking uh, before we got to the genetic marking. We did fish tagging. We did. You talked about the Odalith, the We did the Odalith painting. Yeah, yeah. We did painting. We did all kinds of stuff, you know, just to be able to get some kind of idea of the numbers of survival. But, you know, when we talk about the out-of-phase fish, I remember the, the saying was, on any given day, on any given bay, if you took a sample from the from the bay, twenty percent of the fish would be hatchery fish. Yeah, and that was from Larry McEachran. Yeah, back Doctor uh, Larry yeah. McEachran back in the day. That was the only way to measure. You know, because you could see a little rat red in September. Yeah, yeah. And you're like this fish is the wrong size this yeah. time of year. Right. Yeah. So, but uh, I think. Uh, We've done a lot to be able to get to this point, you know, and, and like Robert says, we're going to continue to try and verify our spotted sea trout survival because we have moved further into that. And then, of course, the flounder, yeah, which is another story entirely. Yeah, I think like, that's a separate mm -hmm. that's a separate podcast, I hope, <laughs> at the sea sitter or, or some other place. Yeah, so, um, I mean, you guys are doing, you guys are have moved from um just doing redfish as as many as you could essentially in the early days to adding spotted sea trout and now flounder and um for those that don't know and david says this all the time a, a hatchery facility is a production facility and it's go 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 mm -hmm. so now you're going year round i mean you're not there's not a time of the year I don't think. Mm -mm. Well, there's not maybe either. a month in there where you're not actually physically spawning a, or trying to spawn a fish. Right. Yeah, uh, production normally starts around March. And uh, back in the day, it would end around uh, when it got cold. Yeah. You know, and, of course, we always would try to meet our numbers. And you know, as Paul said, you know, we would raise uh, $30 million, And it was actually a year we raised $40 million. And then there would be a smattering of uh, spotted sea trout because we always tried to work with spotted sea trout, but there was nothing that ever, we. Ne I think our biggest year would be maybe five million between two facilities yeah, on trout. So those numbers have changed, but they've changed uh, because of the success that we're seeing out there, and because we're able to move to other species and stuff, you know, and because of the need. You know, I remember when we, you and I, over at the Sea Center, decided we were going to start collecting spotted sea trout from the mid-coast base, when the mid-coast was kind of having a little faltering of, of numbers, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, so we were always looking ahead. We were always trying to uh, to determine where we are going to be next, you know. And so it's, it's part technology, but it's also part of the art of fish culturing, you know, because it is an art. Yeah. It's an art and a skill and mm -hmm. attention to detail and mm -hmm. you got to I mean, be one be with a fish. It's yeah. um. I, re I remember telling new people, and I think you probably told me this, David, when I started working in the hatcheries. Like, you got to use your eyes. You have to use your ears, your nose. You have to have the feel. You have to have 
you have to have that sixth sense mm -hmm. about it. So and, it's the, and the blue thumb. And the, the thumb. That's and right. The blue thumb. The yeah. Blue thumb. Yeah. You got to use all your senses to rear your fish, and and you got to know your fish. Yeah. yeah. You got to know your fish. And I remember um, uh, when I first, I think one of my very first stocking trips, I got uh, back in when I joined. All the hatcheries were together. The inland hatcheries and the uh, marine hatcheries were together in one program. So it wasn't uncommon for us to travel inland, let's say the A.E. Wood facility, uh, pick up paddlefish, and go stock them into the Angelina River over in East Texas. So we, back in those days, uh, we actually had 24-hour days where we were working with fish and stuff. And uh, I remember working, had an opportunity to work with a technician that uh, was a 30-year vet back in 1990. And uh, I remember and, and he gave me one of the most valuable pieces of, of uh, advice that I ever heard, which was, uh, fish don't read them books. You know? <laughs> so when it, when, uh, and what it meant was that, you know, you can, you can know all the science, but when you're dealing with a fish, it's an art. And the fish don't go by the, the books they they go by that uh, what's natural you know and natural can change all the time yeah you know? so you got to be one Robert I remember when I got on Robert main thing to me was you have to become one with the fish and in order to do that you have to work very hard at developing those senses but Robert said you got to develop all your senses to kind of you would actually know before they spawn that they were going to spawn. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you know how that feels to be able to, to, yeah. to know that. Yeah. Or it, and, and walk into a room and you're like, okay, oh, something, I, something's I going on here. It. Yeah. 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 Because yeah, there is definitely a, a feel to it. Yeah. When you're getting them to spawn. Has there been anything in, in any of y'all's careers up to this point? Um, Maybe some, maybe Robert or David, uh, like you, you, know, when you started off, you asked he asked you if you could see the vision, or and you know you being the leader of the program for for all these years, you have a vision for the program. Have there any been any, any um, surprises for you? Like if you could if you could go back to when you were a technician or just a biologist, and you look at where the program is now, are, are there any like just oh that's pretty cool, or you know just accomplishments or surprises that 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 you've had up to this point in in your career as the uh, director of stock enhancement program oh yeah uh, again going back to just the technology it's i'm amazed with the new developments in computers and it, it, for instance the data loggers that we use to measure water quality before we were doing titrations and and now we just drop a probe into the water and and take some numbers and so those kind of advancements have, have been uh, great. And then, but I also want to mention that we look down the road at predictions of what is our coastline or coastal communities or, 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 or coastal waters going to be like in 30, 40, 50 years in terms of the habitat, in terms of the fisheries. So what we're doing now is that so we're setting up the hatchery program we'll, where it's going to be beneficial 20, 30, 40 years when you consider the increase in human population, the destruction of the habitat along the coast, uh, critical habitat, those things, we have to start planning now. And, and, and so in, in regards to your question, those are some of the things that have amazed me that we've, we've been able to advance 
the hatchery program, coastal fisheries, the coastal fisheries division, same thing. They've developed along the way all their technologies and continue to improve, but we're able to plan for the future. So that's been amazing to me that once we put our mind to it and we, we have dedicated people, we have supporters, the CCA, and, and supporting us, we can do anything. And so that's been real impressive to me, that the things that we've been able to accomplish together. David, what do you think? Or you can you can answer this. In a, you can answer it as well. The same question, or I was going to ask: What do you see are some challenges for the hatchery program moving forward? Well, I was going to mention something about the uh, you know the surprise. Right? Yeah. For me, when I first started, you know, uh, the stock enhancement program was maybe around seven years old, eight years old, and there was a lot of turnover. People coming through and leaving and just passing buyers you know basically they, they would come in they wouldn't like the, the shift work or, or like i said back in those days we used to do 24 hours it was un uncommon to to be up for 24 hours working with fish so a lot of people left for me the big surprise is how we've gotten to this point where we've got such a great staff you know you know uh, like for instance the sea, uh, over at the sea center mm -hmm. great people People that are dedicated, people that are staying and doing the work, yeah. you know. And uh, we've been able to uh, develop a really good program at all three facilities from the, the folks that we that have come in. And each one's got uh, some kind of skill or some kind of interest or passionate uh, about it, you know. And uh, I think the seeing the not only the development of the hatchery program, but the development of the hatchery staff over time, you know, and then doing all the things that we do. Because it, when we started, it was just produce fish, and you focused on producing fish. And you did as, as much as you could, as fast as you could, because you only had a limited time. And like you mentioned earlier, we've, we're working year-round now because of the three species. And to be able to see the staff develop, I think, is the I think is what really is propelling us forward. And so what, one of the challenges continue to have staff that can meet the challenges and actually have staff that are willing to be challenged because you remember how it was when we started talking about the flounder. Yeah. You know, how we had to force you guys to work on the flounder, you know, literally because it was impossible at the time, we thought, mm -hmm. you know, to deal with it. And there was a lot of, uh, you know, discussion about, you know, uh, are we being set up for failure? Or, you know, uh, we're going into a new species. We don't have the time. We don't have the resources. We don't have the flounder, you know, which CCA was big on helping us on that initial step of helping us get all the flounder we needed in order to start the, the work. So the, the challenge is to have people that are willing to be challenged and to move us forward. And one of the things that Robert and I work towards is that we try to, we are working to develop folks for the future. Because Robert and I are well, we're, we're in the, the latter years of our career. So that means we, someone is going to have to take the torch and run with it. Yeah. And hopefully the people that we are working with are the ones that are going to do it. And we're hoping to continue to develop folks that will lead us into the future yeah you know working with the flounder you know working with other species and then of course like i was going to say we we do all kinds of things it's not just producing fish anymore it's outreach it's education it's 
it's uh, research. You know, we didn't have time for research back then. Thanks to Robert's in initiative, we're having all kinds of research that we're doing now. Whether it's us doing it or whether it's uh, us working with other groups and doing it. But the, the fact that we have all the support is what enables us to do all this yeah. this work, you know. So I think those... You know, it's it's. I think it's. Um, I think you're spot on with those answers. And what's I think it should be encouraging is that because the coastal fishery hatchery program has been so successful, and and so many people know about it, and have gone to Sea Center or the Marine Development Center or or the Perryar Bass Facility, and they've they've grown up with these facilities. They're now going to college and majoring in a in a uh, going and studying marine science marine biology so that they can come back and work at one of the hatcheries mm -hmm. i mean that's their goal in life is to come back and work at a hatchery and i think that that's oh yeah well yeah. you know full well one of our biologists uh, uh jennifer butler she uh I remember when we interviewed her you know uh she came to the sea center when, it, when she was a little girl her mother took her there that's where she fell in love with fish and decided to, she wanted to be involved in fish. And uh, she worked toward it. And now she's one of our leading biologists working on flounder. Yeah. Yeah. So it's those type of people that have that passion or at least have that want. Yeah. Yeah. Because passion wears out. Yeah. You know? No, it's got to be more than just It's got to be more than passion. passion. In fact, you Absolutely. know how I feel about the word passion. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be more than passion. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. It, uh it's quite. It's been quite a development, you know, as far as you know, the people yeah. that work in our field. Yeah. 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 It's not. It's not. It's not easy to to to. I mean, people may say they're passionate about it, or that's where their heart is. But when it comes down to actually doing the physical part of the work, Paul, and and getting in there and and doing the dirty work and doing the mechanical work and um, all the physically demanding stuff, they, you know, that passion's gone. They don't want just to be, a fish farmer. It's just a fish farmer. So, what, Paul? Um, we got a few more minutes here. What's some? Um, what are some of the things that someone can expect coming into working in a hatchery? What is that hatchery life like for somebody? Um, uh, what are some of the different tasks that you guys do? Well, you have to be prepared to work at very strange hours of the day <laughs> because a hatchery is a twenty-four-seven operation. And a lot of the hardest jobs and most critical jobs are jobs that take place in the wee hours of the morning or late at night. Um, so you have to be really flexible to working different shifts. Um, just for example, um, at, at this facility and at the Sea Center, there's, uh, you know, there's a night shift. Someone has to be around to monitor uh, the broodfish in the tanks, and they have to be around to collect the eggs at night when they're spawning or early in the morning around 4 a.m. So... Um, there's all, you know, shifts working all throughout the day um, on different fish culture, uh, monitoring the fish throughout the day and, and collecting eggs and feeding and doing um, all of those day-to-day -day chores. Um, but there's, uh, you know, a lot of the physical labor involved in a fish hatchery is uh, harvesting the fish. And uh, that generally takes place um, no later than 4 o'clock in the morning. So that's usually the biggest surprise um, when we have a new employee coming in is adapting to, you know, being up and at it at 4 o'clock and being ready to work your tail off. And uh, it's honestly, it's not for everybody. And we, 
you know, a lot of people are very excited coming into it. But, uh, you know, six months into it, but, you know, after after six months of harvesting fish at four o'clock in the morning, once or twice a week, uh, you get, you know, people get burned out. And um, I think sometimes people realize they didn't know what they were getting themselves into. So um, for that reason, I think it's a great idea for people who are interested in this line of work to take an opportunity to volunteer um, and actually get a feel for the kind of work that it is before they, you know, make that decision to make that a career choice. Yeah. Um, and most of the time, people are going to love it. You know, the the satisfaction you get from doing this kind of work far outweighs um, any of the negative parts of it. But um, what other people don't realize, and I think, you know, it's great that there's so many people going to school now uh, studying marine science and studying aquaculture, but that's a, only, a, you know, 50 to 60 percent of the work is fish culture the rest of it is keeping the facility operating keeping those pumps running um you know working on pond valves so there's a whole lot of maintenance that goes into it keeping your vehicles running uh you know repacking bearings on that trailer so there's just an endless variety of maintenance that goes into an operation like this from plumbing to electrical work to welding um so we have to have a you know, pretty diverse staff to to be successful. And uh, so for people considering a job like this, don't underestimate uh, the value of good maintenance skills. Um, you know, from anything from carpentry to you name it, we do it, fiberglassing, all of those things. That's a good point. I remember when I was working for the vet school at A&M, there was a big move prior to when I, I was working there for them to um, – to to get away from just accepting males and um you know try to be a little more diverse and and hire more females and get away from um hiring um they used to go into animal science if you wanted to get into vet school of course it didn't work out for me um <laughs> but uh they started to go lean more towards um the biomedical science degree and really hammering down on the best grade point averages um and and pushing to hiring um more more females well what had happened was a lot of a lot of those ladies didn't have they've never worked on a farm or they've never dealt with large animals or they you know they didn't have any you actually need maintenance some maintenance and mechanical type skills to do to do to be a decent veterinarian and they didn't have any of that so i think that's a great point that you make paul is that you could be the smartest kid on the block but if you're not willing to sweat, and if you're not willing to get down and dirty, then this, a toilet every now and then. This is not the job for you. Everything from shovel to science. There you. I love that saying, by the way. Mm-hmm. Shovel to science. Um, so, what are some other opportunities besides volunteering? You've got internship postings. Are they up right now? Still. Yeah, I believe so. I think. Yeah. So, um, folks could apply for internships. Um, to the hatchery program. Those summer internships. Summer internships. And the CCA sponsors a number of them, like eight of them at least. I, yeah, and um, I can't remember what the number was this past year. I think they added a couple mm-hmm. this past year. Well, thank you. <laughs> yep. um, no, CCA is a strong supporter of that program because um, it really – there's uh, quite a few people um, in the department now that have gone through that internship program and are now working for the department. It's just – 
did Paul go through that? Yes, I was a I was the CCA intern for the Upper Laguna Madre crew um, while I was in in college, and so that really helped me get my foot in the door. And uh, I'm very grateful to CCA for sponsoring that internship. It's just a na I mean it's it's a win win. Mm-hmm. I mean the department gets to um, take a look at some people that they may want, they want to, may want to hire down the road and. It works the other way too. People find out that hey, this isn't for me. I, I, right. I want to do something else. Right. So. Um, and we are CCA members too, by the way. Yeah. You know, s- served on a couple of boards and stuff. CCA has been a good partner for us throughout the years. You know, and we're, like Robert said earlier, we're pretty grateful f- that there's an organization like that that exists. Yeah. Because uh, definitely need it needed well it's um it's a natural relationship mm-hmm. i think uh, you know i think both both entities need each other really it's mm-hmm. um yeah, Shane, i've had the opportunity to work with uh, state agencies that have stock enhancement programs around the country and that's the first thing i ask them where's your cca supporters and most of them don't have on the west coast and east coast don't have much involvement with the cca groups so i tell them they need to work on that for sure yeah it's um You've got to have, it, it just makes it so much easier when you have a, um, a partner like that you can rely on because they can do some things that you can't do. You know, they're not, sometimes they're not constrained by the same um, things that a government agency or federal agency mm-hmm. is constrained by. So, Well, somewhat like uh, when we started, first started uh, working with Southern Flounder and we needed hundreds of them, you know. Yeah. Uh, CCA was able to help us do that. They, you know got a bunch of fishermen together and you all went out and collected and we were able to bring in and that would t- as you know that would have taken us years yeah oh yeah to, to get the amount of fish we needed to do the begin the work we yeah did. so we were able to do that in a couple of months yeah well um do you guys have anything that y'all want to share at this time or do you have any any final final thoughts for us um, and I'll do, I, again i just want to thank you for giving us the opportunity to share some time with you. And then again, thank CCA and the CCA Nation for all the help that they've provided over the years. Glad to do it. Thank you. David, do you have any final words of wisdom? We're going to have David back on, uh, hopefully. Uh, we'll talk about flounder a little bit more. Well, I could get real personal here with you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just try to keep it professional, please. Okay, all right. <laughs> No, uh, you know, like I said, Robert, Robert and I, uh, we've been around a long time, and we've had... We're in our golden years. In our, we're in our golden <laughs> years, although I'm younger than Robert. <laughs> so, uh, and we've been, uh, we've been, we've worked with CCA for a long time, yeah, and uh, we've been on, served on board, so we are CCA members as well. And... Uh, I just we're just glad for the relationship, you know, the partnership that we have. They're great people, but uh, we're going to continue to do our work, you know. And uh, we're so in- intertwined that they actually uh, poach from us now. As you, <laughs> Jane didn't mention that he used to work at the C Center, and yes, now he's gone. Yes, and we're but we're very proud of you. We'd rather have you working with the CCA than, say, Alabama, you know, right, or right, right. Florida, <laughs> or something like that, you know, some other. But yeah. I'm still connected in yeah, some way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and I think what's really good is that uh, you know you, that you know you know about us. You know you know what we do, and you can help spread that message. Absolutely. You know of what we do. Absolutely. Because it's it's a lot. It's it's bigger than just growing fish. Yeah, it's no. a lot more than that. Yeah, and stocking them. Yeah. So we appreciate the relationship. Yeah, and it's a good one. And you guys have a pretty big fishing event coming up in April. When's the deal with the city of Lake Jackson? If people want right. people want to come out to Sea Center, that'd be maybe a good opportunity to right. get uh, some fishing in. I'm not uh, April eighth. Sure. I think it's April eighth. April eighth. I, I want to say. Yeah, uh, we are at the Sea Center, Texas, in Lake Jackson. We are uh, partnering with the city. The city used to have fishing events at the, one of the local ponds, and used to have catfish. And of course, they weren't very successful. So we're partnering with them. We've got fish stocked in some of our ponds out there, and they're going to be. We're going to have a day of fishing, uh, where the public's invited to come out, uh, local community and stuff. But it, but if you look at our website, we have all kinds of things. Yeah, happening over there's Sea Center. Um, Center has a nature day, and um, that's coming up in February. The, in February, and then if you go to the city of Lake Jackson's website, they'll have a link to that fishing mm-hmm. deal on their website for uh, kit fish. I, I, one of the things too, we're talking about Sea Center. You know, we have a big fishing program over there, and uh, as you well know, you know the the fishing program is basically CCA members who uh, are volunteer at the Sea Center, and who have, have uh, for over about twenty years have uh, conducted fishing uh, events there, where they teach young, old people, everybody, how to fish, or they have fishing events there, and it's uh, it's also like I said, it's all CCA members. It boils down to yeah, it. yeah. It's um one of the most I think heartwarming um stories. There's been several heartwarming stories been told to me while I was at Sea Center, but um hearing from the fishing volunteers and the, you know they'll come in after a fishing event and there would be an elder group there, elderly group, and you know there'll be uh, some um, older lady or older gentleman. 80 or 85, 90 years old, caught their first fish in their exactly. entire life. And they're just as excited as that little six, four, five, six-year-old exactly. and a smile on their face. And, and we've seen a lot of that. Yeah. You know, so it is more than just stocking fish when Absolutely. it comes to the fish hatcheries. Paul, do you have any, any words of wisdom or anything you want to share with people? Um, well, I just think we've got a bright future ahead of us as far as uh, fishing on the Texas coast goes because of the relationship between CCA and um, Parks and Wildlife Coastal Fisheries. And I just uh, I, I see that being a long-lasting relationship, and I, uh, I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it. And I thank you all for the opportunity. All right. Well, thank you, guys. Um, thank you all for letting me come here and do this. All appreciate right. it. Thank you, Shane. And I hope we can hope we can do it again. Maybe follow up with URV on some um, get with some of you and your students to talk about research. Sure, anytime. Uh-huh. Certainly, I want to get down to the Sea Center and do one on flounder. Mm-hmm. Maybe when they do the groundbreaking on the flounder building. On the flounder building, that would be great. That'd be a good mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Too bad we can't film it because that's a long time in the making. <laughs> That would be a. Uh, That's a story into itself. Yeah, That's a podcast. I think that'd be a ten-part documentary mm-hmm. on that one. <laughs> and what's good, you know, you do know too that uh, we're also having the flounder building being built here at the facility. I'm glad you brought that up. Yes. So yes. there's there's two facilities going in on the coast. Um, their primary function will be to help 
um, produce flounder for propagation out right. into the wild. And one day we're hoping it'll be a year-round process, just like the red drum. You know, it'll be we'll be able to stock flounder at different times of the year. That'd be that's gonna be great. Yeah, I can't wait. That, that'd be Paul's job. <laughs> <laughs> Hang in there, Paul. It'll be a long ride. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll be volunteering and making sure he does yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed that conversation with Robert, David, and Paul. If you want to learn more about the Coastal Fisheries Stock Enhancement Program, go to Texas Parks and Wildlife's website and search for those facilities under the Fishing tab. All of those facilities will offer tours, Sea uh, Center and the Marine Development Center We'll have a little bit more to offer than the Parar bass because they actually are, they have hatcheries, uh, brood fish, and things for you to, to see inside of the facility. Sea uh, Center specifically has also has a visitor center with educational activities and aquariums, and the best part is is that it's all free, so you can take your kids for an afternoon or a weekend, and it won't cost you a dime. So be sure to go check those uh, facilities out. They they'd love to have you out there. Thank you all for listening. Stay coastal.